Let's open in prayer. Father, I I thank you, uh, Lord, for this morning. Lord, I thank you that uh, we can have that strong confidence in you. Our trust is in you. We thank you that you're our king and that we can look to you. And and we don't have to have our, our, our thoughts and our minds set upon an earthly king, but on a heavenly king. And Lord, we know that you hold us in your hands. We know that you're going to, through your people, through your church, you're going to prevail even in this nation of America, Lord. And we thank you for that. We also lift up our missionaries this morning. Lord, we thank you, uh, Lord, that you have called them to the mission field. Lord, there's that calling upon their life to go to this place of Honduras to minister to these people, Lord, the gospel, Lord, and and they need our prayers. And Lord, they're in a time right now, Lord, where they are being tested in their own faith. But Lord, you have prepared them for such a time as this. Lord, you've prepared them for these things that they're experiencing even now, Lord. And so we know, Lord, that the enemy won't prevail, that you're going to uh, rise them up, Lord, in the midst of all of this, Lord. You're going to use them in a powerful way in the nation of Honduras there with the people that you've brought around them. Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon them even now? Lord, would you strengthen them for the work that's ahead? And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, uh, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. And we're going to be looking at verses 27 to 52. I, I titled this morning's message, Jesus' Arrest in the Garden. We are going to be looking now, we've come to this place in Mark's Gospel where we're winding down. But in a sense, we're winding down, but there's so much that is going to happen over these next few chapters. Over the next five to six weeks, we're going to finish the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look today at the arrest of Jesus. We're going to look next week at the trial. And then we're going to look at the cross. And then we're going to look at the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. We finished last week with Jesus sitting with His disciples on Passover. Instituting that Last Supper with His disciples, that new covenant in His name as He sat there that evening with them. Very intimate time. And we're told that through the evening as they took these various cups of blessing and they partook of them together, that they sang a hymn. And I believe that it was a number probably of hymns that they sang. And then we're told that they went out to the Mount of Olives. They left that upper room that was there in the city of Jerusalem and they made their way out towards the Mount of Olives. Jesus leaving that evening with now with 11 disciples. Remember Judas Iscariot had already gone out into the night. And here's Jesus with the eleven, now making their way towards Gethsemane. Gethsemane uh, was a garden. It may have been a garden of a a wealthy person. 
that had this garden area on the Mount of Olives. They know where that area is even to this day. They're pretty confident of it. The name Gethsemane actually means, from the Hebrew, it means the oil press. And I've been and I've stood in that area that they believe is the Garden of Gethsemane. And it still has these olive trees that are throughout this garden. What an appropriate place for our Lord now to leave that Last Supper, heading towards the cross. His hour had come, and now He's heading for the Garden of Gethsemane, the oil press. Luke's Gospel adds in chapter 22, verse 35, that Jesus said to them before leaving that night, He says, when I sent you, sent you without money bag, and he's speaking of an earlier time when he had sent them out to be a witness for him up there in the region of Galilee. When I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything, he asked them? So they said, nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And then he quotes Isaiah 53.12. He was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me had an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. It's interesting that Jesus here on this occasion tells them to take provisions. He told them on that other occasion to take no provisions. He wanted them to be completely dependent upon him. And he still wants them to be completely dependent, but they're going to come to a new time in their walk with him. They need to, and it was okay for them to take their provisions. And he even said to them to buy a sword. They said, here's two swords. And he says, that's enough. Just take it. We know that taking a sword would not have been for an offensive purpose. It wouldn't be to to fight off the enemies as we're going to see Jesus in the garden even in this occasion. But I believe that Jesus telling them to take a sword uh, was a way probably, and, and there's various views on this, but probably a way of just saying that the times are going to change. Looking ahead and what's ahead of us, things are going to be different going forward. He says in John 18, it says of this occasion, this night that Jesus was in the garden, he told Peter, put away your sword. He didn't tell Peter to fight with that sword. Put away your sword, he told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize that I could ask my Father for thousands of angels to protect us? And He would send them instantly. But if I did, how would the Scriptures be fulfilled that describe 
What must happen now? Remember all along, the disciples weren't getting it. They didn't understand completely, even in that Last Supper, what was ahead and what they were going to be looking at. Jesus was preparing His men for what was to come to pass. In John's Gospel, chapter 17, we read that uh, in that chapter, that that evening in the upper room, that Jesus was praying for Himself. He was praying for His disciples. They were going to need it. But He was also praying for all future believers that would come through their testimony. You and I, we need it. We need His prayers for us. We read in John chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. This was a place that Jesus went to. A place His disciples probably had been to before. Judas himself knew that this would probably be the place where Jesus would be at this night. The night that He was going to betray Him. Today, we're going to look at the arrest of Jesus. The night in which He was betrayed. The hour had now come that Jesus was going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus in the eleven, they left that upper room that night. And as they walked towards Gethsemane, it wasn't a very far walk. It was a short distance. They would walk out of that city of Jerusalem and go down into the, the valley of Kidron, and they would just come up to the base of the Mount of Olives, and there was the Garden of Gethsemane. But as they walked, and as they had a, a conversation, Jesus uh, had said to them, and he, he really said something to them prophetically, as He quite often did. Jesus, in every situation, was preparing them. He was preparing them for the situation that was to come. And you know what? He did that whether it was good or bad. He does that even in our lives. These missionaries in Honduras had no clue when this hurricane was going to blow through. How it was going to devastate the land around them and their belongings. But I believe that they were prepared for such a time. Jesus here is preparing them so that when these things come to pass, they won't be caught off guard. Have you ever been caught off guard? Have you ever not been prepared in heart when something comes out of the blue and hits you and you go, whoa, where'd that come from? We need to know that we have a spiritual battle that rages around us day in and day out, but quite often we're unprepared. I think that Jesus, on this walk with His disciples, was being very gracious to them. 
He was preparing them, knowing the weakness of their flesh, knowing that they weren't quite prepared for what was to come. He was wanting to prepare them. Look at your Bibles at verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. How would you like to hear that in a conversation as you're walking along with Jesus? For it is written, Jesus says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I mean, how do you think that sounded in their ears? The shepherd's going to be struck. The sheep are going to be scattered. Jesus here is quoting from Zechariah 13.7, which reads this way, Awake, O sword. And by the way, God the Father is awakening the sword. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd against the man who is my companion. A prophecy concerning the Son of God. Says, it tells us, says the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Here's Jesus telling them prophetically what was going to come to pass even that night. Remember that every detail of Jesus' life, from His birth to His resurrection, His ascension, was predetermined by God. None of this was made up as they went along, the Father and the Son. It was all predetermined in heaven before it came to pass. That's the God we serve. He's in control of all things. Even the kings of the earth. Even the nations of this world. He's in control. But on the surface, we might miss a fact. We might miss that although Jesus was God, He was God in flesh, He was also a man. He was all God but he was also all man. And he had real feelings. You know, sometimes we miss that. We think, well, he's God. You know, he can handle anything. But he was also a man. He had real feelings like you and I. And how do you think that was for our Lord to say to his disciples, I will strike the shepherd and the the sheep are going to scatter. You're going to leave me. You're going to abandon me tonight. These were his friends. These are the ones that were the closest to him in ministry besides his father. Remember that evening in the upper room, Jesus said to his disciples, He says, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. He said that to them just that evening in that room. He says to them, you are my friends 
if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Isn't that amazing thought to think that Jesus Christ sees you as his friend. He sees you as a child of God. He sees this relationship that he has with you like a friendship. And here are these disciples. They're going to leave him. They're going to run in fear. They're going to depart from him. They're going to abandon him there that night. I think it had to hurt. Our Lord, just the thought of saying that, though He knew it would come to pass, He had real feelings. Here's the closeness of His friends. And they're going to abandon Him. That relationship that He had with His disciples was something that we experience now, or at least should. That you have this intimate relationship with the living God. He's not just something that happens down at the church corner. He's something that happens in your life every single day. That you can get up and walk with Jesus every day. And He's your God, but He's your friend, and He calls you His friend. That's the kind of God we serve. It says in verse 28 in our text, But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Isn't that amazing? He tells them that they're going to be scattered. They're going to abandon Him. But after all of that, and even in His closest friends abandon Him in the moment, He says, I'm going to meet you up in Galilee after I've raised from the dead. So gracious. Look how gracious our Lord is towards them, towards us. I'm going to meet you in the place where I called you, up there in the northern region, up in Galilee. I'll meet you there after I've risen from the dead. The place where we ministered together, up in Galilee. That's where I'll meet you. So gracious. So forgiving. Then we see Peter in verse 29. He steps up to home plate, so to speak. And look what he says in verse 29 after what Jesus had said. Peter says to Jesus, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Not me. No, I I won't. Even if everyone else does, I won't. Be careful what you say, Christians. Be careful what we say. When we see others that stumble, when we see other believers that fall away, be careful what you say. That'll never happen to me. How could they do that? Be careful. Jesus responds to Peter's statement prophetically. Verse 30, Jesus says to him, Assuredly, I say to you, Peter, that today, 
even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Be careful what you say, Peter. And I wonder if Jesus, even for a moment, when He heard those words from Peter, I wonder when He said to to Peter, if He just paused for a moment, and maybe He just looked at the face of Peter, knowing what He had just said with this strong confidence. Peter, you don't even realize you're going to deny me tonight. Three times. Peter, like you and I, we don't always see the spiritual battle that's at hand. We get out of bed, we go about our day, we get ready, and and meanwhile, things are raging around us, but we don't see it with our physical eyes. Peter was just, you know, he just thinking right there, you know, no way will I depart from you. No way will I abandon you. Not realizing the spiritual battle that was around him. The rest of these disciples, they may stumble. They may fall away. But I won't, Jesus. I think Peter had a high estimation of himself. It was too high. And we often can do that ourselves. We can have confidence in our own strength. I'd never do that. I'd never fall like that. I'd never do that to my spouse. I'd never, you know, I I, I would never... You see, our dependency needs to be in Jesus Christ and Him alone. In God alone. Should we put our trust. God, You're the one that holds me. I know there's a spiritual battle that's around me every single day. God, I need Your strength. I need Your power. To not, to not sin. To not turn away from You. To not fall. I need You. But Peter even takes it further. In a sense, now he runs to first base. Look at verse 31. But Peter spoke more vehemently. In other words, Peter declared emphatically. He did it with a a forceful speech in the way that he's saying it to the Lord. He made an emphasis upon the previous words that he had just said. That's what the word vehemently means. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. You see, Peter's words even led to the rest of the disciples saying the same thing. I'll never deny you. And the rest of them, I won't either. You know, you just see them, no, I won't either. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you think about yourself. 
Be careful of the estimation you have of yourself. Be careful when you compare yourselves to other Christians or to other people. Be careful when you look at other people's failures and you start thinking, that would never happen to me. I would never fall to that kind of a trap. Be careful what you say. They now arrive at the garden. A short walk. They come up probably to a gated area, a garden area, with these olive trees in it. It's dark outside. The forces of hell are at work. Jesus knows it. He's aware of it. But the disciples are not. They're just going back to the place where they've been before. The garden. A place to pray. Judas had already gone out into the night. He was possessed by Satan, we're told. He'd already gone out and he was already plotting with the religious leaders as they were making that walk to the garden. He was already with them and they were already assembling and getting ready to go find Jesus. The hour had come. The time was at hand. And Jesus knew it. Prophecy was going to be fulfilled once again this night. The cross was just hours away. The religious leaders, the temple guards, they were getting their clubs and swords and lanterns ready to go out into the night to find Jesus. They were being led by Judas Iscariot to the place that he would take them. They followed him. One of Jesus' friends, the one who betrayed him, they followed him to that place. John knew, or Judas knew, excuse me, where Jesus often prayed. But before that hour of trial, before He would hang on that cross, before His arrest that night, Jesus was compelled to pray. He was compelled to take His disciples into that garden, to that place they'd been before. But this was going to be a different time for Jesus. The writer of Hebrews in in chapter 12, verse 2, writes this, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before Him. As Jesus went into that garden knowing that the cross was coming, the joy that was set before Him. In a sense, you're His joy. Your redemption, your salvation. The work of redemption was going to come to pass. 
33 and a half years of Jesus' life was now coming to that hour, to that moment. The author, the finisher of our faith, he was fixed on the cross right now, set towards the cross. He knew that it was just hours away. And here he is in the garden. He's going to have this prayer, this time with his heavenly Father, with his Father in heaven. Look at verse 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to eight of the eleven disciples, Sit here while I pray. Now it could be that he left them there at the gate. This garden was probably a fenced area with a gate. And he may have left them at the entrance to the garden, eight of them. He says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Jesus then does something he had done before. He takes three of the eleven... And that's Peter, James, and John. And he takes them further into the garden. He walks into the garden further with three of them. And remember, this was the same three, Peter, James, and John, that Jesus took up on the Mount of Transfiguration when He was transfigured before them. This was the inner circle, these men that He invested a little bit more into. Peter, James, and John went a little further into the garden with him that night. Little did the disciples know what was ahead. We do the same, don't we? We start our day not knowing. Sometimes we leave our armor hanging in the closet. We should have put it on before we got out of bed. It's still hanging in the closet. And somehow or another, we go about our day as if everything's going to be all right. It's just another day. The disciples really didn't know what was ahead. If they'd been able to see the spiritual battle around them in that moment, one, I think they'd be terrified. I think they would have probably dropped to their knees. But they didn't know. They weren't really prepared. We read in verse 33, and he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began, we're told, Jesus began to be troubled and deeply distressed. What does that look like in our Lord? This is Jesus being troubled in his soul and deeply distressed inside. And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrow, even to death. And he just simply says to his disciples, those three, Stay here and watch. He then leaves Peter, James, and John at another point. And he goes a little bit further and he gets down on the ground and begins to pray. Sit here while I go and pray over there, it tells us in Matthew's Gospel. 
This was as far as Jesus could take them. He couldn't take them all the way to where he would lay prostrate on the ground to pray. This is as far as they could go with him. They couldn't go to the cross. They couldn't go all the way with him. This was going to be a lonely pathway to the cross. Something that he would have to bear alone. And he simply says to his disciples, just stay here and watch. I don't even think that any of us have the capacity in these bodies to even understand the agony, the sorrow, the distress that Jesus experienced in the garden that night. Maybe the best glimpse that we could have of what was going through our Lord's heart was found in Isaiah 53, verse 4. See if you can maybe get a sense as we read Isaiah 53, what was maybe going on in the heart of our Lord in the garden that night. It says in verse 4, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare to this generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made him his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, the Father says, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Can you even wrap your head around that? All that was going on in the soul and the heart, the mind of Jesus in the garden that night. Jesus being troubled and greatly distressed to the point of death. The horrific death of the cross. The kind of death he would face. 
He would do that for sinners like you and I. But I don't even think that it was so much the cross and the punishment and the beatings and all that went with it as much as it was that the Father was going to place judgment and wrath, the wrath that was due to us upon His Son. For the first time in all of the relationship between God the Father and Jesus Christ for all of eternity, the first time that the Father would have to turn His face away from the Son as He bore our sin. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. To be sin for us. In Matthew 27.45, we read that when Jesus was at the, the point of death on the cross, we're told that darkness covered the whole land. And about the ninth hour, we're told, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani. That is interpreted this way. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Father turning his face away from the Son as he bore our sin. Jesus says to the three disciples in verse 34, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. Jesus, He didn't even say, come and pray with me at this point. He just said, stay here and watch. Be aware. Watch as I go off to pray. Just stay here and watch with me. You see, the prayer that Jesus was going to make was not a prayer they could make. This was Jesus before the Father and Him only. He knew that they they couldn't come into this prayer with Him. Then Jesus, as He goes into the garden further, verse 35, we're told He went a little further. Luke's Gospel says that it was just a, a stone's throw away. It was, they, they, they would probably be able to see Him laying there prostrate on the ground as He was praying. It says that Jesus went and He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from Him. And then He said again, He prays it. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Take this cup away from Me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what You will. He says it twice. And He even says to His Father, He says, all things are possible with You. 
Take this cup away. Jesus laying prostrate on the ground, praying to the Father, if it's possible, then let this cup pass from me. The cup that I believe that He was speaking of was that that cup of judgment, that punishment, that wrath from the Father that was going to be placed upon the Son the moment He bore our sin. Let this cup pass from me. Jesus finishes His prayer with these words, Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. It takes strong faith, doesn't it? When you're tested. It takes strong faith in our times of testing to say to God, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Have you ever prayed that? As you've been in the midst of uh, some trying and testing times? God, whatever way You allow this to go, I trust You. Not my will be done. I know what my will is, but I want Your will. It takes some strong faith to pray that prayer. Abba, Father, all things are possible with You. Take this cup from me. In other words, if there's any other way that this can happen, that I could make a way of redemption for man's sins, if there's any other way, Father, let this cup pass from me. But you know what? The Father was silent. In a a sense, the Father said no. There is no other way. He was silent in the moment. As Jesus lifted up that prayer more than once, the Father was silent. The answer was no. He had to go the path. It was the only way of redemption. And the only thing that could make that redemption possible was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There was no other way. Jesus says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what You will. Jesus then, we're told in verse 37, He gets up from the ground. He walks back to Peter, James, and John that are just a stone's throw away. It says that He came and He found them what? Sleeping. He says to Peter, and notice that He's calling out Peter. There's three of them, but He's calling out Peter. He says, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray he says, lest you enter into temptation. He says, the spirit indeed is willing. The flesh is weak. And even though I I, I see here that he's calling out Peter by name, he's speaking to all three of them. 
Maybe it's because Peter was so confident earlier. Maybe it was that self-confidence that he was so vehemently assured that I would never fall away from you. I'd never turn away from you. I'll die for you. That Jesus saw that he would say, Peter, are you sleeping? The Spirit's willing. The flesh is weak. I'll never deny you, Lord. You can't even sit and watch in this moment, this greatest hour of need. You couldn't even sit and watch. We often say the same thing in our minds, don't we? There's so much I want to do for God. I want to be so committed to my devotional time in the morning. I, you know, I, I want to just start praying more, witnessing more. I want to do so much more for the Lord. And then we look at our life and we go, it lasted for a bit. I don't do it like I used to. I haven't opened my mouth for the Lord in a long time. My spirit was willing. I want to, but the flesh is weak. The weakness of our flesh. Jesus first told him, just watch. And now He says to them, I want you to watch and pray. Look at verse 39. Again, He went away and He prayed. And we're told that Jesus spoke the same words. And when He returned... He found them sleeping again. For their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Would you? The Lord walks up to you now a second time, and here you are falling back asleep again. What do you say? He came a third time and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? A third time? It is enough, Jesus says. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I think as Jesus said those words, they probably all looked up and at a distance they saw Judas leading this mob, this large mob of soldiers that were coming with torches and swords towards them. The hour has come. The Father's will was unfolding. The answer to His prayer in the garden, had come. There's no other way. There's no other path than the path that you're about to go. Jesus this night was going to be led away alone. 
abandoned. Just as He told His disciples they would do. Judas, one of His disciples, one He looked at as a friend, was going to betray Him into the hands of sinners. In John 18.3 we read, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, we're told, and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, we're told that they came with lanterns, torches, and weapons. After one man, a detachment of troops was one-tenth of a legion. Possibly around 600 men. You need 600 men to get one. The officers, they came, these, the priests, and they, they, they came with their own temple police. They're being led by Judas Iscariot out to the garden. They would have been able to see the, the lit up torches as they were making their way towards the garden. Jesus knew that His hour had come. We're told in verse 43, and immediately, while He was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, we're told here, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. Even Judas wanted to make sure that the one that they grab hold of was the one that you're looking for. I don't want the darkness, the, the lit lanterns to hide His face. And I want you to know the one whom you've come here for. As soon as they had come, in verse 45, immediately Judas went up to Jesus and he said to Him, Rabbi, that means teacher, Rabbi, teacher, and we're told that he kissed Him. This kiss from Judas to Jesus. It's a different Greek word than sometimes when you read in Scripture about a kiss. This kiss that He gave to Jesus to mark Him out as the One was not a kiss of respect like you would give to a teacher or a rabbi when you would walk up to them in their custom. This was more of a lover's kiss. This was a, a kiss of a lover. The Greek word actually means to kiss much. To kiss fervently. To kiss again and again. To kiss tenderly. It was a kiss of genuine devotion. What an act of betrayal. Could it get any worse than that from a friend? To go and kiss, to mark him out. 
And then we're told that they laid hands on him and they took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. This is incredible in itself. A miracle there in the garden. 600 of these police, these officers, coming to arrest him. Peter, I'll tie for you, takes that sword and cuts off the ear of this servant. We read in Matthew's Gospel in 26, verse 51, it tells us that suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. John's Gospel in chapter 18, verse 10, it tells us there that it was Simon Peter who pulled out the sword. But Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put away the sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and He will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? Peter, you don't need to defend me. We don't need to defend the Lord. We, we go out and we preach the Gospel. He's who He is. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. Whether somebody says that He is or isn't, He is. And I have at my disposal, I could call for 12 legions of angels to come and rescue me here in this garden. Don't you understand, Peter, that this is not going to be a battle that's going to be fought with flesh and blood? And don't we understand, even as we look at our nation and what's going on in our nation, it's not going to be battled in flesh and blood. Our battle is to pray. Jesus reminds Peter who's in control. We need that reminder this morning. Who's in control? You see, he said, I could provide 12 legions of angels. Well, one legion is anywhere from three to 6,000 men. And can you imagine? That would be 36 to 72,000 angels breaking forth out of heaven and coming down on that garden to deliver Jesus. There's no other way. No other way for man's redemption. This is the path that I must go. Verse 48, Then Jesus answered and said to them, this arresting mob, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But then he says this, and his disciples heard this, but the Scripture must be fulfilled. 
Then they all forsook him and fled. He, he, he gives the prophecy right there as the arresting mob is standing in front of him. He says, they all forsook him and fled. Do you think the disciples were pretty nervous with 600 of these officers out there, these temple guards with clubs, weapons, ready to take the... Are they going to take all of us? They probably would have. Are they going to arrest us all and take us all? They probably would. They were afraid. They were nervous. And they began to flee. To leave Him alone. Right there. There's probably nothing worse than to be abandoned by a friend. Somebody that you love. Somebody that's been that close to, to be abandoned in the moment. Jesus knew that He was going to walk this path alone. We close with Mark's recording of this night. It's actually found only in Mark's Gospel. What we're going to read in these last few verses. At verse 51 it says, Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man, men laid hold of him this man, and he left the linen cloth and we're told that he fled from them naked. Get that picture. Talk about desperate to flee. To get out of there. He, they try to grab him. And his apron comes off and he runs naked from the garden. What a picture. What a stark picture of the prophecy that He had just given that He would be forsaken in that hour. He knew that He was going to suffer alone. I think if we could take anything away from what we read this morning, we could look at the failure of these disciples and we could say, you know what? I can relate. I can relate in in so many ways to, to what these disciples did quite often in my life. They're just like us in so many ways. The Spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. But if I could take something else away from this, it would be this, oh, how gracious our Lord is. Oh, how gracious our Lord is towards us. How merciful our God is towards you and I. His mercies are new every day. When's the last time you've thanked Him for His grace? Thanked Him for His mercy in your life? How loving, forgiving, and compassionate the Lord is towards us. He redeemed you. If you're saved, you've been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. All of your failures 
in life. He's redeemed you from your failures. He's done a complete work over your life. It's complete. He paid it all. All of your sin was removed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You've been redeemed. He made it possible for you to be able to say today, I know where I'm going when I die. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with what He did for me. He redeemed me by His precious blood. My sins have been forgiven. That complete work of redemption will help you to not struggle with the doubt sometimes that you are a child of God. He loves you. He will keep you. He will secure you. And you'll be with the Lord in heaven if you know Him as Lord and Savior. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done, but Your will. I'm so thankful that Jesus, that was His prayer. That was His will. But Your will be done. We thank the Lord this morning. We do it in worship. We, we do it in, in, in coming to this place to lift our voices to Him, to lift our hearts to Him, to give back to Him in, in this service here with one another, to love on each other, to follow. We, we do all these things in our thanksgiving to the Lord for what He has done for us. If we just say, thank you, Jesus but there's nothing else that follows in our life? Not much. Remember Wednesday night, those of you that get onto Zoom, we read out of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. After all the Lord has done, what manner of persons ought we to be in holy conversation and conduct? We ought to give our lives like a living sacrifice unto God, which is our most reasonable worship. It's the most reasonable thing we should do in light of all that He has done for me. We have much to rejoice in. And so stand upright, Christians. Stand upright in the days that we're living in. The Lord is coming back. We have a work to do. And then Jesus Christ comes back. Don't be discouraged with what's going on around us in this world right now. Rise to the occasion. Stand to your feet. And let God use you in the days that we're in, no matter how dark they get.